Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. But talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel Series here at Meltdown Comics to benefit 826LA. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program in the style of old-time radio. Yeah. (laughs) Necessary. Um, to find out more about that, visit thrillingadventurehour.com. I'm also a writer on the CW series Supernatural. Really? Oh. It's nice to have some Supernatural people here. Uh, we have a terrific panel. Let's get right to our guest tonight. Our first panelist has written for such series as Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He wrote and directed the show Angel, Smallville, and Dollhouse. He's the creator, head writer, and executive producer of the Star series Spartacus, Blood and Sand, and Spartacus, Gods of the Arena, Stephen DeKnight. Hello. They love you. Thanks for being here. Oh, my Say pleasure. Hi. Yeah, there's going to be no yelling out. Okay. Uh, our next panelist has a comedy writing background, which includes uh, an internship on Mad Magazine, uh, as well as a stint as associate editor of The Onion, uh, writer on Comedy Central's Important Things with Dimitri Martin. She's currently writes for one of our favorite shows, Community on NBC, Megan Gans, everybody. Hi. Say hi. Hi. Thanks for being here. Our our third panelist went from contributing to awards shows to writing for the Sarah Silverman program. He's known as a stand-up comic and can be heard frequently on Scott Ackerman's Comedy Death Ray, both the podcast and the live show. Um, Most recently, he wrote for Parks and Recreation and Eastbound and Down. Please welcome Harris Whittle. They cheered the, the most for the first guy. So far. I'm so far. Kidding. It's not a competition. But you're not winning. I'm not. I'm losing this non-competition in spades. Uh, finally, our final panelist uh, began his writing career on such series as Zorro, Lois and Clark, and The X-Files before uh, hitting a writing stride with his collaborations with Mutant Enemy Productions on Angel, Firefly, and Dollhouse. He co-created the Fox drama The Inside, which was canceled after seven episodes, uh, which has been sort of a theme for him uh, in his career, having worked on such critically acclaimed but uh, audience-hungry series such as Wonderfalls, Drive, and the fantastic FX series Terriers. (laughs) Yeah, right? Where's the PVD already? Uh, as well as most recently on the Chicago Code, he can be found on Twitter under the handle at Cancelled Again, Tim Minear. <laughs> uh, 
Thank you for being here, Tim. Thank you. Uh, let's get started. We'll jump right in. Uh, I know these guys always like to hear about how you broke into uh, becoming a full-time paid writer. Before we get to that, uh, what I'd like to hear about is uh, where this decision came from. You know, I grew up watching television, and as soon as I found out, oh, people write those words, I knew I wanted to do that. Uh, what were the things that you either watched as a kid or read as a kid uh, or even, you know, a young adult that made you want to be part of this business? And Steve, let's we'll start with you. Well, I was a child of the 70s and 80s, so uh, I think I grew up in, in that golden age of television where literally you had three stations to choose from and two of them were a little wavy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I mean, it was such a great time to be a kid, especially uh, with TV at the time, watching things like The Six Million Dollar Man and uh, Battlestar Galactica that had, had just come out and... Just so many great things. And on the movie side, the 70s and early 80s were just phenomenal. I remember I was 12 years old when Star Wars came out, and I think that was really the defining moment for me. Uh, and, and were you aware in watching those? I mean, clearly you were a genre guy already, as I think a lot of mm-hmm. male, boy, male kids are. Um, but were you aware that someone had created this, or was it just the immersion in the world? I, I was. I, you know, I read all of the the magazines, all the star logs, and and, and famous monsters, and all those. And I, I actually wanted to be a special effects guy at the time. I, I very much wanted to follow in the path of Tom Savini and Rick Baker, and uh, do special effects makeup. Um, but I lived, uh, you know, in a small town in New Jersey, as far from Hollywood as you could possibly find. This is before the internet. I couldn't get any supplies. I couldn't make shit. <laughs> so uh, slowly, I, I segue into. I started uh, acting a lot, and uh, that when I was in college, I switched over to writing. Uh, Megan, have you always been a comedy person? Um. Yeah, well, I mean, I probably didn't start talking almost till I was like 15 to other people. So I I was very like introverted and shy when I was younger and <clears throat> and it was probably around that time that I started saying the things out loud that I had always just been thinking and people started laughing at them and then I realized that was like a really good way to make friends. And so it really came um, came out of that. But yeah, I've been I've been watching comedy since I can remember. Um, my dad used to show me old Marx Brothers movies when I like couldn't even process information almost. Um, so I've been I've been like you know I grew up on um, I, I would say probably like TGIF and uh, and uh, that's a for I remember watching all those shows all the time. It's Saturday Night Live. Obviously, I would stay um, up late to watch Midnight at the Apollo, which. I didn't understand at all because I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan and like had no concept of the Apollo and like Harlem and it was just um, but uh, yeah I, I feel like I've always been a comedy person I actually didn't originally intend to ever go into TV writing I but the first big thing that sort of split the comedy world open for me was The Onion the first time I read The Onion I it was probably 13 and I thought that everything as I knew it was different now um, <laughs> How did you find The Onion at 13? Um, actually, my mom bought me... Uh, my dad was always the one who kind of got me into comedy, but my mom, uh, he bought me Mad Magazine for the first time and like stuff like that. But my mom found an Onion book, gave me the first Onion book, which is a terribly put-together uh, book where they even don't even fill the, the page 
Uh, it's just the article is like dead center with all this white space around. It's terribly made, but she bought it for me, and I started reading it. And I had never seen comedy that was done so straightforwardly. Like I, you know, I, like I said, like the Marx Brothers and sort of more slapsticky type stuff. Um, and so the first time I read that, I was like, this is what I want to do. And so when I went to college, I wrote for like the satirical newspaper that was at my campus um, at the University of Michigan. And I was really, really pursuing that. I took English literature. I, I was interested in journalism specifically because I wanted to write for The Onion. And then, yeah, and then that was my first job out of college. So Interesting. Yeah. Did you know all this time that you were not talking before 15? Did you, oh. know, that you, did you know that you could write? Um, I, I didn't write a lot. No, I, I thought a lot about a lot of stuff. I folded, uh, obsessively folded like origami, uh, and, and was on like the bowling team and did a lot of weird introverted things. Um, I read, I read and read and read. I rem I remember, um, from very young age, like the first time I got Matilda, that Roald Dahl book. Uh, staying up under my covers, like reading it until two in the morning, just like a voracious reader. And then I probably started writing when I was like in eighth grade, maybe. I I think that's when I I was barely getting onto like the internet, and uh, and I made my own like Angel Fire website, and I used to blog to myself, and nobody read it except me. Um, but yeah, then I started I, I started liking it, and then when I went to um, when I went to college, that's when I started writing like essays and things that. Were or more um, involved. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. uh, Harris. Yeah, hey. Hi. Hello. How about a round of applause for Harris? Yeah. All right. They'll do Think anything. I'm going to like it here. <laughs> they do anything you tell them to. Um, tell us about your, your background as far as television or comedy, for okay. that matter. Cause did well, you start in stand-up? I, I started, I, I liked uh, just comedy. I liked acting. I liked funny things. And... <laughs> I, I I don't know if anyone else had just like a weird drawer at home that your my parents weren't that into like movies and stuff so we just I was at the whim of whatever VHSs they happened to have and it was uh, a Jeff Foxworthy stand-up special you might be a redneck if dot 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 yeah. uh, Dirty Dancing and Pee Wee's Big Adventure <laughs> I so th I watched those three movies just on the loop and I think at some point the Venn diagram of those things. Uh, uh, formed who I am. It's in all of your work. You can. Yeah, try. I try to give a lot of nods to Dirty Dancing. <laughs> I I name at least one character Johnny Castle. Johnny Castle. In everything I've written. <laughs> and. Uh, but at some point, you must have started seeking out other. Yeah, I I, I wrote an essay and I, I was a freshman in college at Emerson in Boston, and I wrote an essay on stand-up comedy, and the teacher was like, "You should just do it," and to like get to really write about it well and then I did stand up for that paper and I've, I like, I've just loved it and then just kept doing it so I guess yeah stand up but also sketch was a big thing I like rented out a theater when I was 15 with my friends and like we would do sketches and that was based on liking Mr. Show and Upright Sins Brigade and The State and SNL those were the things so and that's who I am Let's see you. See you guys. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Uh, Tim, tell us about your, your background growing up. What spoke to you in television, film, any of those influences? Well, I thought I'd be a, uh, a film director. I grew up in Whittier, and I made Super 8 films. And uh, 
But interestingly enough, the films that I made with my friends were mostly episodes of TV shows. Like we made the Six Million Dollar Man. We made Star Trek episodes. We made, you know, we, I mean, we did the you know, occasional James Bond and really nothing original. And then uh, when I realized I would never write anything original, um, actually an episode of Star, the original Star Trek, uh, City on the Edge of Forever, which is an episode that Harlan Ellison wrote, um, that's why I'm a TV writer. I've been trying to kill Joan Collins again <laughs> for the last ten years. Seriously, I didn't know that somebody that they could lose in order to win, and I literally have been remaking that episode for ten years. How so? Talk about it in your your uh, current work. Plagiarism. <laughs> but for people unfamiliar, with I mean, the, a lot of the genre stuff, particularly that I do, or even interiors, which wasn't particularly a genre show. Um, the notion of going for the sweet spot of the giant pain for the audience, the, the pain that generally makes the audience need to love your flawed heroes more, um, those are the places we always try to go. And, and I really do look at that episode of television as the thing that had the biggest influence on me. How about you guys? Can you point to one thing? That's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> No. Right. Uh, tell us about breaking in. As long as we're we're on these lines, breaking in. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, the way I broke in was I did it completely ass backwards. I um, that seems, and if I may interrupt, everyone we've had on this panel, there seems to be no typical way of doing it. Okay. So ass backwards seems. To I mean, be the I, best re- way. I I really didn't do it the the normal way. I um, I was like I said, I wanted to be a a, a director. But I had some facility for writing, and there were people who would pay me to write, not union things, um, and not pornography, <laughs> particularly. Uh, but uh, a lot of it was this sort of like straight-to-video drive-in type movies. I'd get paid 500 up front and 500 when I was finished. So I'd write them in a week because I needed the money. Mm-hmm. And so I was writing these movies, and then uh, blah, blah, blah. I ended up writing some uh, uh, crappy syndicated television, and I lived in New Zealand for a year, and I wrote... I was the only writer on a show. I didn't know about writing staffs. What was it? It was called High Tide. Okay. And it was with Rick Springfield. <laughs> and, and his ninja beachy brother, and they ran a, they ran a, a detective agency in Malibu. <laughs> And we shot it in his, New Zealand. Was, was his brother also played by Rick Springfield? <laughs> no. no. I would watch that show. No. I, I he was on a... There was a... Anyway. Um, <laughs> so I wrote a bunch of those. And then when I came back, I had a stack of those scripts that nobody would read. And, um, and the only show I watched, my agent said I was going to have to write. First of all, my agent said, I can't be your agent because you're not working. Uh, but if you ever have anything you'd like me to read, I'd be happy to read it. I'm, I still have this... F- freaking agent um, and, my ma- and my manager said you know here's 50 bucks get something to eat and um, and uh, and they said I'd have to write three specs I'd have to write like this will date me uh, a, p- a picket fences a law and order I should have just said law and order no one would have known a, lo- a law and order and uh, you know something else and um, then I realized I- I'd have to go to law school um, I'd have to like I just didn't know anything about any of these things. There was one show I did watch, which was The X Files. So I got a bunch of X Files scripts, and I s- broke them down. Like I went through and I sort of outlined what the scripts were, like where the act breaks were, sort of the, where the booze were, and actually I also looked at I also fan. I mean, this like a talisman. I would fan them and see what they looked like. 
And I was really working off Morgan and Wong scripts. And so then I wrote an X, I had one idea. I wrote an X-Files spec, and then I fanned it. And it looked just like one of theirs. And then uh, I got a job a week later, and I've been working ever since. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Harris. I'd like to start with some observational comedy. <laughs> he, when he said the phrase straight to video, I was thinking that in two years, do you think people are going to say straight to Blu-ray? Not ever. For like shitty things, you're going to go straight Not to ever. Blu-ray? Straight to the way. With extras and... Okay. So that's good comedy. And... <laughs> I uh, was just, I was just doing stand-up and uh, just working jobs and stuff out here, like my first year in L.A. And um, Did you come out here right after Emerson? Yeah, yeah. I just stayed here from mm-hmm. Emerson. And, um, and how long were you working stand-up out here? It was like... I did a semester out here at, while at Emerson and interned at Comedy Central. And you just, like, watch shows in the vault. You just, like, lock yourself in the vault and watch everything ever. It's really great. Um, but it doesn't do anything for anybody. And, um, uh, and so I was doing stand-up at Largo, the old Largo, which is the, it's a great club. You should go. And um, uh, it was the same night that Sarah Silverman was doing... She was headlining, and and then I was just doing, like, a set, and then uh, she saw it, and then I think we got high. We did. I know we did. And um, That does not sound like the Sarah Silverman <laughs> I know. But I, and she was like, that was really good, and she just started asking, and I didn't hear from her for, like, three months, and it was just like, that was still, like, really cool. And then I got an email, and she's like, hey, it's Sarah Silverman from Argo. I was like, all right. And she's like, uh, I, we might have an opening on our show on the Sarah Silverman program. This was going to go, this was for season two. And uh, she's like, we need a green writer. You know, someone that hasn't uh, worked. That means that Comedy Central had like, yeah, 10 bucks to me. And, um, and she's like, if you're interested, that's cool. If not, it's not going to be, don't worry. And I'm like, yeah, I'm absolutely interested. And then I submitted. She was like, we have to see something. And I luckily had written Arrested Development in college in a TV class, uh, which was, is garbage. This, I love Arrested Development. My spec was garbage. And, uh, and then I wrote, like, I just submitted sketches because that's all I had. But luckily at that point, I think it was just a formality. She was like, okay, we, yeah, so she hired me. And then, for, so it was, I was, it was lucky. It was very, very lucky. But... Also, I was working at stand-up, so I don't feel like I totally, like, skirted the system. You have to eat shit for a while. But I did. I just did it in stand-up and not in TV. I didn't have to be, like, a writer's assistant or anything. Really. Did you have a lit manager at the time? or a lit I did. I, I had a manager from stand-up, but they kind of cover everything. And, uh, yeah, so, so they kind of facilitated it. That's how I found out was from the lawyer at Comedy Central being like, hey, wait, do, where do you want us to send the papers? Just this, like, very, like, he just called me. And I was like, what? What paper? Did I get it? Did I get it? And then he was like, yeah, you, you got it. And I'm like, yeah! And he's like, I'm a businessman. Brilliant. Uh, Megan, tell us about breaking in, because you started at Comedy Central as well, right? In television? Um, yeah, in television. Uh, well, the, uh, the way, like I said, that I got to The Onion was that I was writing for this similar thing in college, and then The Onion started this writing fellowship program um, which they had never done before, which is kind of like an internship, except you actually got to be in the writer's room and, and write articles. <clears throat> um, so I sent in like headlines and, and, and stuff for that, and, uh, and I got picked to do that. So I, went, I moved to New York like a month after college, and I um, worked at The Onion for three months and was terrified every single day that, uh, that this was my one and only shot. Um, 
And uh, at the end of the, when that was done, they like they couldn't hire me at the time, but I kept freelancing for them for like a little while, writing um, just articles, and then they would just pay me by the article. Um, and then after three months of that, then they hired me full time as a writer. So I worked there for three years. Um, how I went to, ended up going to TV was. Uh, by the second year, I'd become like an uh, assistant editor. I can't remember which one went first because they were all meaningless. Like you, you, all your titles don't mean anything uh, other than more work for the same amount of money. Um, <laughs> but uh, I <clears throat> and I and I had really I really liked being in the Onion, and I didn't think I ever want to wanted to leave. But I also loved the paper so much that I knew that I didn't want to stay there until I hated it. So around like a year and a half. Um, I got a call from an agent at UTA who had heard me on, they did an episode of This American Life about The Onion, and, uh, and I spoke on that, and then he called me, and I didn't know what UTA was, because I was like in New York, obviously, and didn't, wasn't looking for agents, and, uh, and so I kind of gave him a, like the blow off, I was like, oh, you know, who is this, and I didn't think about it for like three days, and then I was t offhandedly telling a friend, like, I got this weird call from, have you ever heard of this place, UTA, and they were like, call that person back, <laughs> so I called him back, and, and he did like, um, uh, he, he basically said he couldn't represent me because I was, I was writing for The Onion at the time, um, but if I put it like a packet together, if I had like a spec, and uh, and I, I, like I said, I wasn't really thinking about moving into TV, but I really liked Colbert and The Daily Show, and I thought that would be like a good way for me to transition. So the first thing I wrote for him was a packet for Colbert, and um, I got an interview off that. And then after I got that interview, then he was, my agent was like, okay, now we're working together. <laughs> um, uh, so, so I did that, and I didn't end up getting that job. And then the next packet I wrote was for Dimitri's show. Um, and I, I'd never done sketch before. Like I, I, I was not much of a performer. I did some like plays in high school, but that was only because I was desperate to do any sort of comedy. Um, but uh, I, I, the first two sketches I ever wrote were in this packet. I had to write a couple sketches, and uh, and they worked out well. And and I remember my agent saying like, "Don't tell them you don't have any sketch experience if they call when they do the phone interview. Like don't." And that was the first question, is how much sketch experience? And I said, absolutely none. Uh, the two sketches that you wrote are the only ones I've ever written, but if you like those, I can like write more like that. So um, they ended up hiring me, and I moved out to LA, and then I did that show last season, and then, that, that, and then after that show was the first time I went out for like hiring. Um, and was it a conscious effort to get into non-sketch? Uh, I didn't, yeah, I, I would say I, I didn't end up loving sketch. I, I don't think I'm very good in like really short bursts. I need like 30 pages to really get my point across, I guess. So I, <clears throat> I didn't click that well with that. Um, so yeah, I was looking for, for narrative. And I had really loved Community the first season. Um, I was friends with like Donald Glover, who's on the show, and uh, in New York, we were all doing stand-up together. And I started watching the show because he was on it, and I was just thought it was awesome. And uh, so when I went out the first time, I kind of like told my agents that that was what I was really interested in. Um, and I wrote an It's Always Sunny spec, um, which also was shit. Not the show, my spec. It had two acts in it. I, didn't, I, I did try to do the same thing where I was like, I guess this is where you put a split. And so, but it ended up not mattering because um, I, I had met Dan, the, the show creator, Dan Harmon. Um, 
I went to I, I followed him on Twitter because people were telling me that he was insane, <laughs> and uh, and so I started following him just when I was a fan of the show, and I had made some dumb like jokes at him, and he had started following me, and so I that I before I met him in person, I knew him over Twitter. And then I stalked him to a Channel 101 event and went up and blabbered about how much I love the show, just like shaking about, I'm just such a big fan. And I said, I'm going to be going out for staffing this season. Like, would you ever look at something I wrote? And, and he, and I asked him for advice and I was really awkward. And he said, uh, he goes, how, how old are you? And at the time, I, I think I was 25. And he said, uh, you should take a nap. <laughs> you're, you're very, uh, and, um, and it was funny because then I went, I, they submitted my packet and I got an interview at the show. Um, I later learned that Dan read only six pages of my script, uh, got to the first joke he liked and was like, all right, and just stopped reading. Uh, but uh, but I, so I, I did the interview and everything and then um, I actually, when my agents called me to tell me I got the job, I was sleep, I was taking a nap. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's how I got, that's how I got on. Hilarious. It's interesting that you wrote a, um, it's always sunny spec. I mean, we've heard, especially for new writers, the thing to do is to write original material. That's what showrunners are looking at. Were you told to write a spec of an existing show? Um, they told me I could do either. I didn't, because I had never done it before, I felt like me just doing a fully new... I'd never written anything that was 30 pages, you know, and, and I was still learning how to use Final Draft. Like, when I started Dimitri Martin's show, I had no idea how to use, like, the script format or anything. I had to learn it very quickly. And so I, I just didn't feel comfortable, like, doing branching off completely, and I really loved It's Always Sunny because it reminded me of The Onion in a, in a sense that you take, like, a topic and then you satirize that topic in many different ways by having these characters like a swarm of bees just kind of bounce off of each other, doing everyone doing a different version of the wrong thing. And so I, I really like that idea, or that format, um, and so that, that's why I ended up writing that, um, writing that yeah. Gotcha. Uh, Steve, how did you become a professional writer? Well, I studied playwriting in college. Uh, I was in college for, yes, seven years. They had to drag me out. Um, Where was that? Uh, Santa Cruz for my undergraduate, then uh, UCLA for my graduate studies. Um, and afterwards, uh, I got out and quickly realized uh, I've got a degree in playwriting. I'm going to starve to death. Um, so I, uh, I had to get a real job. I ended up landing a job as an ESL teacher for a Japanese school in Van Nuys. Um, and I thought I would be there six months, writing career, and then I'd be out. I was there for seven years. Uh, living in a one-bedroom, second-floor apartment in Glendale with no air conditioner. In the summer, I had to type naked because it was so goddamn hot. And uh, I was writing mostly features. Uh, I was trying to break into features, and I was, I was writing one shitty feature after the next. Um, I, I finally placed as a finalist in the Nicole Fellowship, one of the big writing uh, contests. And out of that, I got a really, really shitty agent. Um, I, I was at an agency. It was a very, very small, like, four-man operation. Uh, it was an actor's agency. And there was one literary agent there. It was this lovely woman who was at, at, a little bit past the end of her career. Um, she was never in the office. I was convinced she worked out of her bathtub at this point. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I couldn't get a job. I just could not get a job. Um, then I got a call from a buddy of mine from college. And he said, uh, listen, I'm, I'm working on this really terrible MTV show called Undressed. Um, LAUGHTER 
He was working on the pilot, and I knew nothing about the show. He said, Roland Joffe is doing it. I'm like, Roland Joffe, The Killing Fields? That sounds fantastic. He says, no, it's not. It's terrible. It's terrible. In what capacity was your friend working on? Uh, at that point, he was, I believe, the uh, production coordinator. And he said, look, this, this thing is so bad, it'll never get picked up. But if it does, I can get your material to Roland Joffe's people. So six months later, he calls me up and says, I, I don't know what MTV's thinking. They picked it up. Um, send me over you know, your TV material. I've been writing features. I did one spec as an experiment. And yes, it was a Deep Space Nine spec. <laughs> yes, it was, uh, it was a Deep Space Nine that explained why Ferengis were short. I, I write what I know. Um, so I said, here's my Deep Space Nine spec. Uh, and he said, oh, all right, I'll send it over. You know, it's a teen sex comedy, so <laughs> this probably won't work. And the guy at Roland Joffe's company was a huge Deep Space Nine fan. So I got hired on, a, on to uh, Undressed, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a factory. We were doing 40 half-hour episodes. We were writing them, casting them, shooting them. All in about 15 weeks. So it was, we had three sound stages going at the same time with three different directors. It was just How did in, the quality insane. not wane? <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so I was, on the, I was on the show for four seasons, but it's kind of like dog years. Um, literally, that, that translated to about a year and a half on these four seasons. And I remember there was a point where I was writing this script. It was a, one of the high school stories. And this girl had to take her shirt off. And, I, man, I was out of ideas after, like, 140 <laughs> episodes. So literally she goes, she's having a conversation with her friend, and she goes, ah, da, da, da. oh, you know, this tag's driving me crazy. <laughs> and that was the moment I said, i got to get the hell off this show. i got to get a better agent. So I, I wrote a new spec on my favorite show at the time, which was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You guys and, haven't seen that show, right? You're not familiar with it? And so uh, I wrote, uh, taking a page from my uh, Ferengi script, I wrote a script called Xander the Slayer, which explained why men can't be slayers. Because basically the power goes to our big fat heads, and we, and we go bananas. So I wrote this, and unfortunately I finished the script during staffing season, so no agent would read it. Nobody wanted to touch it because they were busy trying to get jobs for their own clients. What season was Buffy in at this time? Uh, they were in season, I want to say three. Okay. I think I came in, wait, wait, no, they were in season five. Yes, five. I came in on five. <laughs> Tim agrees with me. Well, it was after Angel started, right? Right, yes. Well, yes. I, I believe that pre-Angel is the high school years. Right, I, right. There's was, four of those, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I believe you are correct, sir. Uh, so I, uh, I, I write this spec Buffy. Uh, no agent will look at it, so I have to give it to my agent in her bathtub. And uh, she was a feature agent. She knew three people on television. One was the head of Joss Whedon's company. Whoa! Yes. <laughs> so she sends it over there. They read it. They liked it. They called me in to talk about working on Buffy the Animated Series, um, which unfortunately never got off the ground. We've got ten fantastic scripts, and still we can't get it made. Um, so uh, they read it. They liked it. They said, look, we've got to give it to Joss, and he doesn't like any Buffy script, so, but we'll, we'll push hard. So I go back to Undressed, and I'm 
sitting around for like a month, and then the phone rings, and it's Joss, and he calls up and says, hey, it's Joss, <laughs> really like your script, you want to come in and talk? And I go, hell yeah. So I hot-footed over there, and we talk for like a half an hour, not about Buffy, not about, we talk about comic books and movies, and who do you like better, Marvel or DC? <laughs> And at the end, he says, look, I know you're talking about doing the animated show, but do you want to do an episode of the live-action show? And I said, hell yeah. So uh, I did a freelance episode of that, and I remember they invited me to the production meeting. And uh, we go through the production meeting, and we shot at Bergamont Station in Santa Monica. So our offices and stages were there at the same place. And at the end of the production meeting, everybody disappears. Marty Noxon says, can you hang around for a second? Joss might want to talk to you. And I'm thinking, okay, i got to rewrite something. And so he calls me down to the set. And it was a, it was a great moment because it was the music, uh, the magic box set. He calls me down there. They're shooting. And he says, hey, you know, we, we like your stuff. We like you. You want to join us full time? And that really, for me, was the start of my career is when he gave me that job. That's unbelievable. Um, we've heard a little bit. We've had David Fury here and Jane Esmonds and a number of other Buffy writers. Um, so we know sort of how the rooms were working and how even the Whedon rooms were working, uh, Angel included. Um, but I'd like to talk specifically about what each of you brings to your shows. Uh, so when you're in the room, Tim, uh, whether it's on your current show or whether it's on you know, Firefly or when you started, what do you think you bring to a room? Um, what are your strengths as a writer, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, my strengths as a writer may be different than my strengths in the room. That's a good point. Um, in the room, actually, I'm pretty good with uh, taking over the room a little bit. Mostly because I just want to get the hell out of there. Sure. You know, So it's like I want to get the shit on the board and send the writer off to write so that I can go have a cigarette or leave or do whatever. I just don't want to be there. Um, although I really, you know. I hate it. I hate working. <laughs> and um, but what I am good at is structure. I'm good at you know I'm good at structuring a plot on the board and sort of getting to the heart of like what the thing is about, finding the um, sort of the theme or the metaphor because in genre a lot of it's theme and metaphor and um, and not making it about a bunch of just moves like making it about the character stuff like stripping away all the cool moves that you might put on the board and just really sort of getting to the heart of, you know, what does this say about Angel or Mal or Buffy or, or well, not so much Buffy, because I, I don't think I worked on Buffy, did I? Yeah. I saw it, though. Yeah. It was pretty good, wasn't it? Didn't suck. It's not too late. Yeah. I think that's um, what I bring. And I'll tell you, in, in watching a bunch of your episodes, you know, of... He's going to tell you what you bring. <laughs> yeah, why didn't you just... I'm yeah. surprised you didn't come up with that. Yeah, uh, exactly. I like to take over a room also. Um, there's always something in your scripts that does strip away the characters a bit to say, to look at them maybe from a different angle. Uh, to say, why again, why do we like this person? Or right. why do we respond to this person? Is this a conscious... Uh, choice on your part? I, I think it is. I mean, I think, look, I didn't have words for what I was doing until I started working with Joss. Mm -hmm. um, and now I have words like phlebotinum and <laughs> words that really don't mean anything. But Steve would know what they meant. Um, but th that is sort of how I approached it, even unconsciously, when I was like writing my X Files spec or when I was on Lois and Clark, or because even if, you know, anyway. So um, I think that is something that I. Uh, 
that I try to do specifically. Mm-hmm. But being a mutant enemy, what I learned was that uh, it's that's the easiest way to break a story because you can get just so confused when you're just trying to just make something track. And if you constantly bring it back to the thing that you wanted to say, and by the way, that thing may change by the time you're done breaking the story. Um, but you know, because a lot of a lot of story breakers go up there and they and they they're just trying to break like now what's the action thing and now what's the scary thing and we need to have a kiss and all that crap and that's really you know I can't do it that way. Uh, Harris, we haven't had any Parks and Rec people here yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us how the room works <laughs> on that well. show <laughs> and uh, what you bring to it as well. Um, well, it's a. Con- I actually have always wondered about drama versus comedy rooms and what. I hope we get to that today, Ben. <laughs> Hold on. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's. Uh, I think that Greg Daniels and Mike Sher, the the creators, did, and they haven't said this. I think that they like to stack their rooms with a wide variety of pe- of different people, like old white guys and a, a Asian guy and a young black girl and a young white kid. I, and we have a seven-year-old Laotian girl. On <laughs> and, um, That's a minority hire, right? <laughs> yes, on all counts. And uh, so I think that I, there's like a certain type that I feel. I, you know, we have a kind of a douchey character named Jean Ralphio on the show and I think that frequently Mike will just be like, Harris, go write the Jean Ralphio <laughs> scene or something or if you know, if they need a reference to like a new rapper, I'll be like, "Soldier, it should be Soldier Boy" or something, and then they'll be like, "Yeah." Like, so I think that that's kind of, and also from a stand-up background, I think just jokes. Like, I, I like I pitched jokes, and I like jokes. So, how do they break down the episode, the writing of episodes on that? How do they break it down? How like, and do you take an episode and do a draft? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah uh, we'll we'll break uh, an episode together in a room, and then. The writer will go off and do a Goldilocks, which is like the the one-page Microsoft Word document that's just the bare bones, what the story is. And then we'll read it as a room, and then that writer will go off and write a longer outline, eight pages or whatever, come back, we'll give notes on that, and then that writer's sent off. So it, it goes through like a lot of stuff. And then you come back with your draft, and then it goes through a, another grind. There's been episodes where I have more jokes in someone else's script than my own. Like, you know, it's just such a... a communal type thing I feel like that uh, yeah so interesting yeah thanks uh, Megan we've had a number of community writers here Dan included um, but I am curious about coming from this strange sketch background that you have where you didn't love sketch um, but you clearly love comedy and are very good at it what do you bring to that room because um, that's an intense room it is a very <laughs> intense room and I don't have much to compare it to because I've the only other room I've been in per se was um, was at the Onion. Dimitri's. We sort of worked separately. We didn't. We weren't. Didn't spend a lot of time in the room together. We would write sketches and then we'd pitch them to Dimitri and th- then we would do a little bit of editing. But um, so I really only know how this specific room functions. And at at this room, uh, I I have a, a flair for taking over rooms myself. And I, I most of it is just because I like to go to the board and just start laying things out. It's hard for me to like. Breaking stories, especially stories as complicated as ours get, um, it's, it's really hard for me to hold all the parts of my head at once. And I, so I, I'm a big fan of, and Dan has, you know, t- he goes by Joseph Campbell's um, story circle. And so it, there's, a, there's a shared language of like how we describe what we're doing to each other. 
Um, so I'm, I'm always the, like, I remember on like the clip show episode, we were breaking that and, uh, I covered three dry race boards with, it looked like this inception, like madness with arrows and like everything. And it only made sense to like the three people who were in that room that night. And the next morning when the rest of the writers came in, they were like, what happened here? And we were like, we broke the hilarious episode. Doesn't it look so funny? Um, uh, had 75 scenes in it. Um, but uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I am not, you know, I've found I'm not a big, big uh, ideas person. I, I have pitched stories um, that have gotten in the show, like uh, overarching concepts, but I'm really bad at, at ho- delivering a whole pitch. Like, usually I'll deliver, like, like for the conspiracy theories, for instance, I, uh, which was written by Chris McKenna, who's like a fantastic writer, I pitched to him the idea that Jeff took a conspiracy theories class. And then when he went in to take his final exam, the teacher was gone, and he didn't. He, it was like a conspiracy about where the teacher was, and from that, like that's as far as I could go. Though I'm, I'm not very good at like. And then this happens, and then th- I have like one joke, and then if you like that joke, then go go for it, and then they take it, and um. So so I, yeah, I I sometimes take over the rooms because not not because I want to leave because there's no chance in that. Uh, that's just it doesn't happen. Uh, but but I, I like to move things forward to the point where we're working with a draft and we get to write jokes because that's always my favorite part. Sitting in the room and there's a, a space and. Somebody's at the keyboard and there's silence until somebody makes a joke. That's that's my favorite. Um, but I, I I'm a big dialogue person. Like that was why it was really cool that I got the bottle episode as my first one because it was totally dialogue driven and um, I, I love like runs and jokes and people playing off of each other. Uh, Some doing the more conceptual like big episodes sort of evade me, but um, yeah. So I guess that would probably be it. That's great, uh, Steve. You're running Spartacus, right? Yes. Uh, what have you taken from shows that you've worked for in the past to running your own show? I think the most important thing uh, is what I learned from, from Joss. Uh, I remember early on I, I had written a, uh, a script that was had a lot of purple prose in it. And uh, Joss made the comment that uh, the language was so elevated, it practically spoke itself, which was not a compliment. Um, And he said something I'll never forget. He said, look, at the end of the day, it's emotion and clarity above all else. And uh, especially with with Buffy, with Angel, with uh, Firefly, and and with Dollhouse, uh, the thing that Joss was a true master at is that uh, it was never about the monster. It was never about, you know, that MacGuffin. That was always used to illuminate characters. Um, So that's really a a lesson that I took moving into Spartacus, where it's not about the sex, it's not about the violence, is that these things are an integral part of the show, but it's how they affect the characters and illuminate the characters, Um, especially with with violence. Um, Our show is... A little bit violent. <laughs> May have seen it. We uh, and but but for me, it's the violence always has a serious serious repercussion on everybody, and I think that's that's very very important. And it goes to something that Tim was saying, is that you know we never try to approach it where it's just this happens, then this happens, then this really cool thing happens. At the end of the day, at the end of the episode, I, I want there to be an emotional impact. You know, I want that character that you've fallen in love with to die in a horrible, horrible way, but not just for the shock value. So it's like 
tentacles branching out about how it affects everybody and how it convolutes the story and brings it all back together. Which is not to say that sometimes you don't start with a cool moment. Like, in other words, I I did an episode where, where Darla stakes herself and there's a baby. And we knew that she was pregnant... And we knew that she was going to you know, give birth in some way. And my original pitch to Joss was, what if, uh, what if Angel has um, angry sex with her and then stakes her at the end? Because and, and, I thought that would be really funny. Um, he thought maybe that was too dark for the WB. Uh, although he does sort of rape her, and that was kind of funny. Um, but... Um, but the, the notion that Darla stakes herself and there's a baby, like, sometimes we would have these orange cones that were, like, just, like, these cool things we knew we wanted to do, and then we'd sort of build around it. So at the end of uh, the prequel for uh, Gods of the Arena, we knew we wanted this big 20-man fight. I mean, that's really where we kind of started with. It's going to be a battle royale. So I, I asked the writers, I said, look, uh, I'm going to go work on this other script, uh, put up all the cool things going to happen in the fight. And I came back, and, and number one was Flaming Net. <laughs> and I'm like, sold? That's all I need to know about the fight? There's a Flaming Net. <laughs> Which symbolized something else, right? I think that was just a Flaming Net. Oh, okay. yeah. Sometimes it is. Yeah, sometimes it is. <laughs> um, I'm curious to know, from all of you guys, uh, and again, on any shows that you've worked on, uh, pitches that have been rejected. And why? I mean, because I, I also, like you, Megan, will come in <clears throat> with, I have a great build-up. I have a great idea, jumping off point. But it's hard to pitch an entire uh, episode, especially when you know, well, may not go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, do, can you think of pitches that you've loved that have been rejected? Or pitches that you've loved which have been taken and maybe turned into uh, an episode that you loved or hated? Um, I... I had to be broken of that a little bit, the, the preciousness about my ideas at The Onion, because we'd pitch 25 headlines every Monday, and it, you were lucky if one or two got in the paper, and that's one or two of the people who worked full-time on The Onion, so uh, it was, it, it, I, I just stopped getting precious about the, the individual ideas, although there are still some that I think about all the time, um, but the on the show, um, uh, Dan, you know, Dan's pretty good about like using what's good about your pitch uh, and and moving it in like that conspiracy theories one. Like he finds like a nugget of something and he'll he'll use it. It's it's been the first staff where I feel like nothing gets wasted. Everything like turns into something else. Even if he doesn't like something, the pitch room. Like um, I'm I'm trying to think right now of like a specific idea. Uh, the the bar episode I, uh, the mixology um, I broke with Dan uh, over a lot of late nights um, and, and and there were a lot of people involved and it got rewritten like a million times but I got to write um, I, I came up with sort of the idea that that Abed it, I, it was me and like a, and somebody else we were like pitching about how Abed uh, meets a guy who's trying to hit on him but the guy's into Farscape and so Abed allows himself to be hit on just so he can talk about Farscape for a little bit longer um, and played, I, by, played by Paul F. Tompkins I played by say. Paul F. Tompkins right? star of awesome. the thrilling adventure hour really funny um, 
And I, I didn't know about, I didn't really know Farscape that well. Dan had, I, I said Abed's into something really nerdy, and then Dan filled in all of those blanks. Um, and uh, I think I was originally, I was saying The Last Starfighter, which then didn't end up, but, but at, any, at any rate, uh, for, uh, that caused me to, because Dan, Dan said, oh, I like that, and it was getting down to 11th hour, so... He said, okay, he basically broke off chunks of the script and gave them to people and were like, go write these. And I got that chunk. And so uh, I, I would spent like three hours on Farscape message boards reading, <laughs> trying desperately to like get some working knowledge of what that show was about, having never seen an episode in my life. And there is message boards for shows that have long since been canceled but are still active are fascinating (laughs) like these people are still having arguments like from that month there would be a post where people are having arguments about like that show and it was just crazy but uh but yeah so so i mean that was one i I really i liked how that one turned out um yeah i think it was it's interesting, though, that ideas can be thrown out and not just discarded, not just forgotten, that there's, they'll sort of settle out there, and if yeah. you need it, they'll pull it that in. For some reason, you don't hear that often. I, yeah, okay. I, I think because we're breaking the show, the new episodes right now, all of the ideas that are coming to my head are ones that I can't say because they're going to sure. be... But, but yeah, it'll be like I just came in and pitched something the other day, which was a wholly conceived storyline about involving Britta that was way too rompy, but for, I, I write like a Marx Brothers movie and bring it into Dan, and he's like, that's not going to work, but pulled out... The essential funny thing that I was that I was building it off of, and now that's going to end up being in the show. So, so that's cool. Uh, Harris, the same question: Are there things you've pitched? How are story? In fact, how are stories pitched on the show? Uh, we usually like we'll just each writer come in at the beginning of a season with like five pages of just like one line things, and you just read them off. Mm-hmm. It's it's grueling, and it's. Uh, and then uh, I think one time I said, like, the hackiest, say, like, I was like, a chili cook-off. Because you just, like, write <laughs> just any, you know, and you just, like, say whatever. And, uh, and someone was like, and they were like, that's dumb. I've seen that so many times. And I was like, it's a stew-off. It's not chili, it's stew. It's stew-off. And, uh, totally new. Yeah, totally new. And then that became, I became so made fun of for stew-off. For two seasons, I think it's now gonna get because if something like just stays in the like zeitgeist of the room for long enough, it'll get because eventually we're gonna need a setting, and eventually stew off will work. Please, I'm on a season seven show. Where there's a whole board of things that have been rejected for six seasons, and oh, oh we can, we can maybe yeah. do that one. Oh yeah, by this is you know we're four season now, so we're fucking going back to stuff that we. Did not use in season two for a reason, <laughs> and uh, and I went well maybe. So you, you just run out of stuff. You gotta, you know. And your characters are in a different place. You know, maybe the time. That is far true. Is. That it, it works in different contexts now. Now there's different dynamics and stuff that you can. Yeah, that's very possible too. Uh, Tim, the same question: How does pitching work uh, on shows that you've been on? Has there been a great show that you feel like the room has heard everyone? Has there been a terrible show well, where pitching was not? Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to say what the terrible show was, um, but there was a letter in it <laughs> and some files, <laughs> and um, that was a really the hard team. Yeah, it was the A-Team. That was a really hard show to pitch on. And that that was the show where, um, yeah, that was just, I don't even want to... And you were, did, when did you, you came in fairly late in B, the series, the right? What? You came in fairly late yes, in the Yes, well, in the middle, season oh, five. Okay. It was season five of TV's The... Th- so was it that, <laughs> of whatever that show was? Yeah. 
so was it that the room was so well? The problem well was that, that, that point, the, the the guy who who had created the show, <laughs> whose name's whose name rhymes with Chris Carter. <laughs> Was off doing. Uh, well, it does rhyme with that. Yeah, it's a slant rhyme. Um, uh, was off doing the movie, so he sort of wasn't there that year. He was off doing the movie. Uh, and what's worse is uh, <clears throat> he made that movie. <laughs> I don't know if you saw it, but then uh, I realized, okay, maybe this isn't the place for me. Um, Are you talking about X Files? <laughs> <laughs> no. Rockford Files. Farscape. Barry, it's six oh three. Six oh three. We're just gonna bleep all that out. <laughs> Um, but so he wasn't around that much, actually. So that was a really hard. And, you know, look, it, it was an incredibly successful show. It was an incredibly prestigious show. And there, I think there was a certain amount of pressure on a show like that. So uh, happily, I've just been on raging failures ever since. And it's always been pretty pleasant. Yeah, because there's really, no one's really worried. Because it's like, no one's going to see this anyway. <laughs> what? They're, 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 they're talking animals in a souvenir shop? No one's going to watch this. You know. Can you can you get into the specifics a little bit about what made one unpleasant and what makes the other pleasant? The people. The Wonderfalls, which was good. We didn't uh, say the name of it. Uh, uh, the people is what makes it different. Do you know what I mean? And and say, look, by the way, sometimes it's not that the people are bad people. It's just there. It just may be, uh, but they are mostly. <laughs> They're, they're monsters in their way. Um, but I, th- I think what makes, it, what makes it pleasant is the people. I just came off a thing that the people were great. <laughs> yeah. Now you talk. Let's, uh, let's go back over here to Steve, because you've put together rooms now uh, right. a few times. What do you look for to make up a strong room? Because you do have some very strong rooms, too. I know, I know a bunch of those guys who are yeah. great writers and great people. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit of, of, of alchemy, really. I mean, it's a lot of trial and error. Um, it, it's not uncommon for a year one show to let all their writers go at the end and, and try again, or just to keep one or two. Um, I, I've been lucky. I had a slightly better percentage rate, I think, from the first season to now. Um, two of my writing entities have, have stuck with me. Um, uh, you know, you, you just look for a combination of a really good piece of material, and you meet the person, and you got to figure out, do they fit in with the family? Um, because I, I, I've had some fantastic writers, but they just did not get along with everybody, and, and you can't have that kind of, of dissension in the room. It will absolutely poison the well. People, you know, won't want to be in the room. So, uh, you know, it's that, it's that artful balance between personality and talent, and, and both of them count for an awful lot. Um, and it's something to remember. You can be the best writer in the world, but if you can't get along with the other writers, if you cause trouble in the room, you will get the boot eventually. Mm-hmm. Interesting. How many people are in a drama room versus comedy? Is it about the same? How many in a comedy room? Like it's like 10, yeah, 10 to 12. Smaller. Smaller. Sometimes I mean, you, smaller sometimes on. Well, maybe on. Yeah, on cable. Too. We, we don't have enough right. money for that. <laughs> but it, it can be anywhere from like 7 to 10, don't you think? Mm-hmm. They had like 18 on out, Outsourced, I heard. Outsourced was like 18. They yeah. had like a lot. It didn't show. <laughs> I don't know which way to take that. I think every room. Wow. I think every room I've been in, it's been around 7 or 8 tops. Are they. Is it, is it funny? Is it like. 
Is it serious? No, no. It's a little joke. No, it is. It's like a fun room. Still, you're just writing different. Well, it's fun when I'm there. It is. I remember on on Angel, uh, Buffy was upstairs, Angel was downstairs, and uh, I remember one day, uh, which didn't make you better. Well, oh, but you, no, you I, I was on Angel. Yeah. I was down, I was demoted by uh, that there's point. A, right. There's a fire. In exactly. There's a demotion. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I remember uh, Doug Petrie, uh, one of our fantastic writers on, Ugh, on, on Buffy. <laughs> there he is. He's back here. He pops down one day. We, we're in the middle of, you know, we, we have like two days to break an episode. It starts shooting in three days. And he comes down and says, hey, we're talking upstairs. We're wondering, who do you think would win in a fight, an astronaut or a caveman? I remember that. <laughs> And I swear to God, at first we were like, get the hell out of here, we're working. Three hours later, it almost got violent. I mean, we were yelling at each other. Um, so, so it's not funny to answer your question. <laughs> we're going to turn it over to you guys in just one second, and I give you the caveat that we give every week. Please remember that questions begin with a W or an H and not with an I. Um, astronaut or caveman, who wins? I, I came down firmly on caveman, but then there was Astronaut. a big... Astronaut. Don't be a see, fucking hold idiot. On, hold on. Listen. <laughs> I, I, it really all depends on the scenario, because if it's a straight-on fight, the caveman's going to win. Yeah, but if, he's, if, he's, if you're going to call him an astronaut and he's not going to have astronaut things, then he's just a guy. What are, well, <laughs> He's not actually an astronaut. Well, we, what are astronaut things? What is he bringing? His spacesuit? Oh, yes, exactly. Him. He's bringing his spacesuit. He's bringing a laser pistol. This is exactly what happened six years ago. Otherwise, he's just a guy. Unless you're like, well, I'm an astronaut by trade. I well, happen to not have no, none of the accoutrements. That's not fair. I mean, you got to have open the can. (laughs) Would you like to weigh in? Uh, Obviously, caveman. End of discussion. Clearly. Clearly. These guys know what they're talking about. Animal strength. Uh Versus nothing. There's no laser guns. And and they move faster than a Gorn, you know. Astronauts just like a nerd in a little helmet. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll see see who actually writes that episode, and we'll see who actually wins. I'd like to see all the weirdest parts and rack episode of all time. Uh, that's for the Cave community Parks and Rec crossover event, right? We'll do, we'll do uh, caveman versus stew. Yeah. <laughs> like, totally yeah, new who idea. Who makes a better stew? An astronaut or a caveman? It. We've done it. We've cracked this We've story. We've done it. <laughs> All right. Do we have questions from the audience here today? Uh, I'm going to walk over to you. If you could meet me in the aisle, that would be great. If it's at all convenient for you to get out. Uh, and again, I should have said, try to keep the questions somewhat general. We have four terrific writers up here. Don't get too nerdy with these. Yeah. Uh, Don't touch them. Don't touch it? All right. I just would like to know the longest day that turned into a night that turned into a day, like for which episode that might have happened on, or how long you've actually worked on one particular story where you just you were there for two days plus. Yeah. Uh, Megan, you've been there for days on end, right? <laughs> um, the worst and best experience of my life was working with Dan on the My Dinner with Andre episode of this year, which is great if I do say so myself. It was my favorite uh, and uh, this year. But at the beginning of the week, I'll, like, I'll never forget it. So we started the week, and I think it was shooting the week that we were rewriting it, or it was starting. Like We were so close to filming. Like, Danny... Uh, who plays Abed, got the pages for that um, monologue that he gave uh, about Cougar Town. Um, he got them 
like that morning and of of them shooting that episode that's how close to the date uh we were writing that um we didn't have a table read which is good because that never would have gotten past brass uh us having an episode where half of it is two guys sitting around talking about a show on another network um and like and not being clear if we're making fun of it or not uh but anyway, so at the, be- the beginning of the week, on the Monday, usually we had like a morning meeting and then we would split into two groups. One is the story breaking room and the other would be rewriting whatever episode we were working on then. And uh, the morning meeting finished and Dan said, uh, okay, uh, Megan, uh, why don't you stay in this room and everybody else can go into the breaking room. And I was like, I'm going to be fired this close to the end of the season? That's weird. Uh, and he uh, basically just told me that I was going to help him rewrite this episode and he, he used the word rabbit hole to describe what we were about to do, what we were about to embark on. And that day started at 10 a.m. I left it, I think, midnight the first day. We did nothing but talk about Abed's monologue for the entire day. Uh, he was doing his circles. He was trying to figure out how you could make it the story of death and rebirth. And, like, it, it was ju- it just... almost insanity to the point where the only other person in the room was one of our EPs and the whole time he was just texting me going are you understanding any of this (laughs) and I was texting back yeah I wasn't but I just did I was like this if if the boss wants me to be on this episode like I'm gonna do my best so um, that was the first day and then the second day we spent the entire day writing that that speech like back I mean we were working on other parts but basically really focused on that monologue and um, that probably went till 2 a.m. And then that was the night where I went home and I realized that my inner monologue was Dan's voice <laughs> and that I was losing track of reality. Because also by this time I had been working weekends too, so it was just like nothing but the show happening in my life. Um, so it, would be, it did become this really strange experience. But, but then the third day we brought another writer into the chaos uh, Adam County, who's one of the other staff writers, and and he was totally overwhelmed by walking into what had been two people going mutually insane with each other for two days. And I think by the end of that week, I'd probably, I mean, it was like 14-hour days, like every day for the week, only talking about this one episode and these one things, and both of us being exhausted, me sleeping on my couch for like a half an hour in my office and then waking up and coming back, and um, then going down to set, and uh, it was it was scary. And, and Dan, Dan's talked about that episode in interviews before, and, and he says that I said something, which say like basically he describes it as saving the show because he was at his lowest point, and I basically I said I love this show, I love this episode, it's going to be really good. Like we have to finish this. This is like we have to get over this hurdle. And when after he said that in an interview, the people at work, my coworkers, were making fun of me the next day, being like, "Oh, you saved the show." <laughs> and then they said, "They said, did you really say that stuff to Dan?" And I said, "I said fucking everything to him in that room. <laughs> I said anything I could think of to move us forward one uh, other uh, one inch from where we were." Um, so yeah, that was. That was probably the wow. worst. <laughs> uh, Tim, can you recall a particularly difficult break uh, for an episode? Oh, I mean, there's been a bajillion difficult breaks. Um, yeah, I mean, often, uh, yeah, we'll be trying to break things forever, and then eventually it'll break. I mean, for me, I mean, I, I think this is what's different in a way in drama is that, although maybe it's not, because I don't know. I've never been in a comedy room. 
Oh. Uh, we're, we're naked, mostly. And, um, okay, so that's similar. There's, uh, there's uh, uh, gelatin involved. But, um, Same. I mean, I, I, I've, I've done the thing where I've literally written a script nonstop for 40 or 50 hours, or sometimes longer. Like, on, uh, when I, I wrote an episode of Terriers, a, a couple actually, um, where it was literally like, I become like Rod Taylor in the time machine. Like I'm watching the fashions change outside my window. <laughs> like the sun is coming up and going down and coming up and going down. And, uh, you know, eventually I, I, I finish it, but I did this one episode of Terriers, and when we were there shooting it in San Diego, the, it's the last scene of the flashback episode, and um, there, it's a final flashback, and I wrote that scene while they were shooting the scene before it. And then I handed it to the actors and said, we should do this, too. <laughs> and by the way, we didn't go over on that episode. But it was the same thing on Out of Gas, on Firefly, too. There's a scene where Malcolm's on the bridge and starts fighting with Wash. And Alan Tudyk seems really angry. He was really angry <laughs> because I had just written the scene. And by the way, everything he said meant nothing. Like, it was like, you're going to put the nav sats to the blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was all, like, techno babble. But it was ri- it's written in such a way that you can actually follow what they're talking about, like, in, just in terms of, like, the escalating argument that they're having, even though the things they're saying don't mean anything. And Alan was um, really angry. Actors get like that when they don't get their scripts ahead of time. And, direct, and directors are all like, oh, I need to prep. It's like, okay. Don't they know whose medium it is? <laughs> they're double parked. Yeah. Uh, Harris, can you think of a particularly easy break? Uh... No. Are they all difficult? Yeah. Every, really? All of them, I think, have been difficult. Because uh, there's, a, you know, it's the room's job when someone says an idea to find out why that doesn't work. It's just, the, it's you have to naysay and you have to find out every possible thing wrong with it. That's just the best way to do it. And it sucks, but, you know. But the longest break, or the longest one... We've been pretty. We're pretty good, I think, at uh, not staying too. At Sarah, especially, we would go in at ten, and then she would fall asleep at four <laughs> p.m. And then that we'd be like, I guess we're done <laughs> for her nap. She takes siestas, and I love her for it. But um, and uh, and then at parks, yeah, we're we're out by like eight thirty. We stayed at eleven, trying to break the finale, the little Sebastian episode, and we couldn't think of it. And then, like, a, a godsend, a janitor walked in. We were just, like, so angry and sitting in silence. And he had, like, a weird Walkman on his belt, like a speaker. So we were hearing this, like, Stevie Nicks song. And he would just go in and out of our office and <laughs> empty the trash and come back out. And then we were just, like, silently, just thought it was so funny, just laughing to where we were excusing ourselves from the room so that this guy wouldn't see us <laughs> laughing at a Stevie Nicks song. <laughs> and then that led to, oh, what if a janitor walks in on Leslie and Ben kissing? And then it's and then we're like, oh, shit. Like, literally, so that just happened. It just happened to happen. And it was, it was, that was the breakthrough. So, yeah. Lucky. Uh, Steve, can you think of a particularly tough uh, episode, maybe, to write? Yeah, you know, they're like Tim said, they're all hard. You usually hit a, usually start out with this great idea, and this episode is going to be fantastic. This is going to break in two days, and a week and a half later, you're like, "What the hell happened? This is awful. I hate everybody in this room." <laughs> And then uh, we, we always talk about it in the Spartacus room. It's it's we have the dark night of the soul, and it happens on every single episode. It uh, you know there's a moment where you're sure nothing is going to work. You have to throw everything out, 
and then you rally and somebody has a bright idea and you play off it. Um, time-wise, though, I, I'm a firm believer. Uh, it might be different in, in comedy, but in, in drama, I think you hit a certain hour and then anything after that, you're not going to get anything done. Mm-hmm. You're going to sit there. You're going to spin your wheels. You're going to talk. Sure. You're going to talk about movies, and it, nothing's going to happen. So I like to keep uh, – I'm very, very strict. That We work from 10 to absolutely no later than 6. Wow. And, Are you and, and then, <laughs> I want to work on your show. <laughs> now, that said, Tim also knows from Dollhouse when I was consulting that I was the invisible man. I would, were you on Dollhouse? Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> I would pop in, hear what they were working on, and this happened every single episode. I, w- I would say, that's Cracker Jack. You guys don't need me. Yeah. Sadly, were I can't you, do that now. Were you working on something else at the time while you were consulting? On Dollhouse? Uh, no. No, I was just consulting on that, and uh, that's when uh, Spartacus happened towards the end. This better be brief. It is brief. It's a Twitter story. How long can it be? <laughs> Sean Ryan said that anyone trying to get TV work should, ha- should be ready to go out with an uh, hour long and half hour. Uh, a, do you agree? And B, how would you Horse suggest? Shit. Yeah, I don't um, agree with Don't that agree with that? No. Yeah. Right. What was B? B was if so, which means no. Um, what, how would you suggest someone from One World who is interested? That's not- the Glee guy? <laughs> is that? No, who's Sean Ryan? Who did you say? What Sean name Ryan. Is- Sean- oh, okay. All right. I, what do you guys think? Who's the Glee guy? I, I, that's uh, I Ryan know. Murphy. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hilariously enough, I just worked with Sean. Sense. I'm about to work with Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I, I disagree with that, actually. I mean, I, I think you can be interested in both things, and you can write both things. Or not. Like, I'm, I don't feel like I need to go out and write a, a half-hour spec. Um, but I do know that we've hired people on some of the hour shows I've done off of half-hour specs... You know, Jane Espenson started as a as a half hour writer, and uh, on a lot of the stuff we did at Mutant Enemy, there was a lot of comedy in there. So, I mean, it, I I don't think there's one way to do it. Yeah. Steve, will you read both when you're staffing? Yeah, I'll read anything. Mm-hmm. We read plays and yeah, by me, I mean my like assistant. That? Right. Cool. <laughs> and uh, th- th- then it's uh, here's another thing to know is that when you're trying to get your material to somebody, there are so many levels you have to go through because there's such a huge volume. Uh, by the time I get a script, Stars has read it, um, my assistant has pre-read it, um, and then I read it. Um, so it has to go through several steps before it gets to me. But yeah, I'll, I'll read anything. And, and that said, I would say it's not a bad idea to have a second thing. Yeah, it is. Uh, the most important thing is write what you really feel most passionate about. Yeah. Pick that show or that genre, and it'll really show in your writing. Don't don't write both just because somebody tells you to. Yeah. yeah. This is a question for Steve and for Tim. Um, um, I'd, like to, I'd like to know specifically about you making that jump from staff writer to creating your own shows. If you could talk specifically about the first or second. Which what story is more interesting about Drive? I'd be interested to know about that. Yeah. And then also in the last few years... <laughs> well, I mean, this is kind of related to that. Also in the last couple of years, if you felt the pressure to go... You guys are both kind of genre guys, or started as genre guys. Have you felt the pressure to go procedural and... Or at least have a procedural element in your one hours? Um, that's the question. I, uh, you know, it, it's, it's such a long haul between staff writer to getting a chance to create and run your own show. Um, you've got to go through a lot of levels, and uh, you can certainly create your own show early on, but they won't let you run it. You've, you've got to, usually you've got to spend a, 
at least a couple of years as a co-exec yeah. and prove that you can you can do the production side of it. Um, but for me, it was like the first time that that I was directing uh, on Angel. Um, you know, I had studied it. I had been on set. Nothing prepares you for it, for actually doing it. And it was the same thing for, for running a show. It's it, 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 In fact, there's a lot of the same elements. Is because one of the hardest things of being a director in, in TV is that it's not so much the directing, it's the thousand questions coming from all directions all the time. Uh, it never stops. And it's pretty much the same thing with running a show. It's not just about the great story or the great script. You're dealing with problems with actors, costumes, sets, budgets, um, just a thousand things going wrong. Uh, you, you know, uh, you, we're dealing with a thing right now that we're working on a script. One of our actors decided to get into a bar fight and get like 14 stitches in his face. So now you got to figure out how to work with that. So it's it's all that stuff. It's really it's a lot of management. I mean, I I feel like I had more of creative impact on shows that I didn't actually create than ones that have my name on them as creator. Like, I feel like I, I brought more to sort of developing what Angel became, or what Wonderfalls became, than Drive or something like that. And the inside was just a completely weird thing where they already had shot a pilot, they'd already had a title, they had an actress, and they asked me to come in and fix it. And I said, I can't fix this. I said, there's no way to fix this. The guys that you screwed couldn't fix this because of the demand you made on them. If you like this girl, just do Silence of the Lambs every week, thinking I could now leave the office. And, and they were like, great, do that. So I ended up creating a show based on the grave of this other thing and um, because they had premiere dates and they had production. You know, I mean, it was a whole, yeah, so I don't know. Let's very briefly, uh, you reacted very strongly to Drive. Oh God! <laughs> what? Why the reaction? <laughs> I met one. Of... <laughs> Let's put it this way. From now on, I've made a pledge after that show. The only time I get in bed with a stranger is for sex. <laughs> <laughs> but That's not for business. <laughs> That's fair. That's you know, fair. an interesting thing about Drive yeah. is. I was on, uh, I think I can trump you here, Viva Laughlin. And literally... Well played, sir. Uh, <laughs> literally, you know, shot in Santa Clarita. I pull up to the office for the first day, and my parking spot says, Tim Minear. Because <laughs> he, he, Drive had just uh, gone belly up. It was just a nightmare. I mean, the, it was just a... It was, it, yeah, it would, they picked it up, they canceled it, they brought it back, they recast it, don't recast it. I'm like, Nathan Fillion has a deal with the studio, the network, he's a friend of mine, he wants to do this. It took a year for them to say yes. So that's just like one small, oh, and by the way, how about this? We've decided that there needs to, they need to win something every week. Like so, what's the what's 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 the you know what's the uh, what's the finish line every week? And this was supposed to be basically. I didn't tell them this, but I was trying to do Magnolia in Cars. I mean, eventually they'd start singing Amy Mann, and either you'd love it or you'd hate it. But it just never got that far. Yeah. Uh, there's someone over here. Yeah. Don't touch. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. Um, you spoke a little bit about the process of breaking in the room, but I was wondering if you could speak to the process of when the executives get involved and the notes and how that helps. And I'm, I'm sorry. I've, been, I've listened in on some of those calls. I know how ridiculous they are. Um, but how it helps and how it hinders the process of making a show. Thanks. 
Tim's going to walk out. <laughs> I just want to say one thing. I just got the dumbest note, and this is up against some pretty stiff competition. I just got the dumbest note on a script from a network that I ever got, and I will tell you what the note was. Literally, this was the note. Jim should not be upset by Malcolm's designs on Jim's wife. It makes Jim seem weak. Let's really ratchet up the tension. <laughs> that, that was, yes, that was the note. What do you do with something like that? I just did what I wanted. <laughs> was it given to you directly, face to face? No, it was given to me in an email. Oh, okay. Right. So it's easy to react to that. Well, I mean, you know, I, and by the way, I'm not one of those people who just assumes an executive's notes are going to be stupid. Like I've worked. So you're with... constantly surprised by that. Then. <laughs> they always are. <laughs> For the most part, they're not, though. For the most part, the, you know, these are professionals. Like we're professionals, and they're having to, uh, you know. They're having to speak for a whole lot of people sometimes. And I know a lot of very smart executives who have helped make things better. But every once in a while, you do get the, let's have him not be upset, really ratchet up the tension note. <laughs> uh, how about the rest of you guys? Have you had good notes, bad notes, experiences from the network, from production companies? Definitely good and bad. The worst was, again, be the Laughlin. <laughs> Because there were five different production entities involved. So the first notes call, there were, I'm not kidding you, 20 executives on this phone call. And you can imagine trying to figure that out. But the opposite end of that is on Spartacus, um, the notes are so small. And really, we get one or two notes, and they start off, listen, you know, this isn't really important, but if maybe you could do this, and it's night and day from, from the network side of things. How about you guys? Um, I mean, this is my first experience, like, obviously dealing with studios and, and, and things, and, um, <clears throat> and I... I I, the, the NBC has been great. NBC seems like a big fan of the show, so they tend to like when we do weird stuff. They they believe in us. They think that it's cool that we do different things. Um, the studio, uh, so, Sony is a little, I would say, like, and we talk about the show, it's like, it's it's not that we take you take bad notes personally, but when it seems like they're not a fan of the show that you're making, it's hard to listen to notes because... If it all stems from a place of wanting it to be something that it isn't, uh, how like you feel like then if we listen to any one note, we're sliding into whatever show you're trying to create instead of whatever show we are. I remember the when I was pitching, they have a, the writers pitch the stories um, uh, to the studio and network uh, before we go off and write our drafts. And I remember I was pitching the the bottle episode, the first one, and the. I was so nervous about pitching it because I really didn't want to screw it up for us, you know? And so I was really nervous about impressing these people the whole time I was pitching. And then by the end of the call, because of the notes that we got back and the reaction, I was, I felt like, I felt like sorry for people. It was like, it was to I was totally no longer intimidated. I was suddenly like, oh, you're... You don't. You're not. You don't want to watch the same show I want to watch at the end of the day. And having been a fan of it the first season, it was it, it, like that's the, fandom is the only way I can talk about that. It's like you're talking to. It's like when I call my mom, God bless her. But when I call my mom to ask her what she thought of the episode, she says, "I just feel like they talk really fast, <laughs> and I don't know what to do with a note like that. Uh, that's the, the show." Um, and so when it feels like the notes are dismantling something that's, like, integral to what the show is, 
but but you know, I think that that's like part of <laughs> Dan's like um, uh, staff writer or uh, story. Um, what's showrunner? I can't think of the name of it. Uh, part of his showrunner spinach is getting bad notes and being able to come back into the room and tell us how dumb they are and how smart we are for knowing better. So <laughs> it, it, it works. Uh, Harris, I'd be interested to know. You have a lot of writer actors, both in the room and on the show, as mm-hmm. actors on the show. Do you guys get notes from the actors as well? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I don't want to sell anyone out or anything, but you, uh, you know, we'll believe yeah, it. There, there's uh, there's time when you're the on-set writer. Basically, whatever episode that you wrote, you're on set for it, and they'll come up to you and say, oh, "I don't like this joke. Can we beat it?" And then you have like. 10 minutes during setups to try to beat the joke and we usually do and it's not that big of a deal they really do like they have carte blanche just tell you guys to rewrite stuff yeah I mean it's Amy and it's disease and it's like all these people are like funnier than any of us and so I'm gonna (laughs) gonna listen to them so but um but network wise like I feel like NBC is pretty good Comedy Central I remember when Sarah's show was cancelled or before we thought it was cancelled and the logo came in and saved us and we got one more season but uh, I needed a job and I took it at this show called Secret Girlfriend, uh, which was a first person. It was shot like Peep World or whatever, where it was first person and it was just like dudes trying to get laid. And, uh, and that's all it was first person. That's the whole show. And then one note was like, does it have to be third per- or first oh, person? And, uh, and then I, I was like, I was like, well, <laughs> it's literally nothing if you take that out. <laughs> it's zero. It's not anything. Uh, and then I also remember an executive, uh, this like British guy that worked at this, the like the studio or whatever, said. Uh, I remember being on a phone and hearing the sentence, "I just want to have a raging boner." <laughs> he wa- like when he was watching the show, he wanted a he wanted a boner. And uh, you might have been watching the wrong show. <laughs> Uh, yeah, back here. We have time for a couple of more. Well, I can follow a raging boner, but I'll try. Um, <laughs> thank you for your refreshing uh, candor, by the way, Tim. Oh, shit, I'm um, fucked. <laughs> I, we're all fucked. I'm no, so far past no, fucked, it's going to take the no, light no, no, no. from fuck 300 million years to reach um, me. My, my question is, is quickly <laughs> in two parts, and uh, Megan kind of hinted on it uh, with her... Uh, Farscape research. I was curious, since you guys come from very original programming, what kind of research you either did on your own or were forced to do? Any anecdotes or, or like Can funny anecdotes or quick? bad anecdotes? And I also wanted to ask Steve separately about the business side of going to a cable network like Stars and being the creator and positives and negatives of that experience. Especially at the time, I'd like to hear just briefly about Stars first, uh, where they weren't doing a lot of, or any, I no, guess they had was, a couple of sitcoms, uh, right? They had Crash, which was produced by Lionsgate, but this was the first one they produced. You know, I, I think, uh, I'm going to go to Rob Zombie on this one. Uh, Rob Zombie, when he uh, did um, The Devil's Rejects, um, and, and it, it went to, to Lionsgate, uh, he said uh, the thing about freedom is it often comes with a pay cut, and it's the same thing. Uh, you know, we make uh, we make shows. It takes longer to make them. We really craft them as as much as we can, but that means we make less of them. So uh, I, I often talk about Smallville. I was on Smallville for three years, and I'm still making very good money off of Smallville because it was 22 episodes a year. On Spartacus, we make, well, spin the wheel, it depends on what season, uh, 13, 6, 10, 
So you do take a pay cut, but you do, you know, the uh, the trade-off is you get a hell of a lot more freedom. I mean, it's, if you've seen Spartacus, I can do things on Spartacus that I could never think about doing somewhere else. Uh, and about research. Well, it's interesting. We were just talking in the, in the uh, green room. Green room. Um, on Chicago Code, which I recently uh, got canceled, um, <laughs> they, all the writers went out there and they did a ride along with the with the Chicago police, and they went to the morgue and all that stuff. I was the only writer who didn't do that um, because I was a because I was finishing Terriers, and b because I didn't want to because the entire reason I do this is so that I don't have to know anything. Like that's why I write genre and not other things because I get to just make stuff up and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to know anything. I didn't have to go to high school. That's my answer. That's a good answer. And I mean it. <laughs> uh, have you guys found that you've needed to do research for things? Like, can you think of an episode specifically? Uh, Besides Farscape. Uh, not... Well, I do, do... I've had to catch up on a lot of movies. I, I didn't... Like our our show is obviously heavily pop culture influenced, and Dan is a like walking encyclopedia of film. And I, because I'm you know from a younger generation, and I just didn't go through whatever time period. I guess like everyone in college uh, just went through that thing where they just watched like every movie, like they were just aware of like all of this. It just took in information, and I uh, bothered to f- get straight A's in college, uh, and then went into comedy, so uh, I spent most of my, like, I did, a, I, I did a, a senior thesis, it was like 60 pages on David Sedaris' essays, and like, read humor theory books, and, and was, but so I hadn't watched like any, you know, besides the TV that I grew up with, not a lot of movies, like I'd never seen like Indiana Jones, for instance, and like, had to... Don't watch the last one. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll have to run. I would have to, you know, I'd be sitting in meetings, and then Dan would say something, and then I would go home that night and, like, desperately watch uh, Zardoz or whatever, you know, it's like whatever nonsense he was talking about that day. Um, um, the, oh, the, 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 uh, when he started doing the bottle episode, uh, I, they, Dan was saying, you know, he had been saying, I want to do a bottle episode. Maybe you should do the bottle episode. Maybe the bottle. And I was, I was going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then I was like, I just have to go to the bathroom. And I took my iPhone into the bathroom and like Googled bottle episode. And I was like, Oh, it's some Star Trek thing. I don't know what this is. And I started freaking out. Uh, so yeah, stuff like that. But uh, the Onion, I did a ton of research. Like, I would have to type in things, like, just to write stuff like how to build an atom bomb or, like, how to, you know, like, a NASA. And I would just have to take words for, that sounded like I knew what I was talking about. Um, yeah. No. Uh, it's not, I, I, yeah, I could, but no. <laughs> <laughs> they also, on, on a lot of these, who asked the question? On a lot of these uh, procedural, more procedural shows, they have researchers who work for the okay. staff who will do this stuff. Uh, I think we have time for one more question. Is there someone in the back? I'm sorry I didn't get to any of you guys. Yeah, come on up here. Can I throw in one question to the audience, which is... To the audience? Yeah. Ugh. Q&A reverse style. <laughs> Check it. I feel, I don't I feel know a ton, I don't know a lot about comic books and stuff, but I have these gift certificates to here. 
And so if you have any recommendations, come find me after and tell me, like, the one thing that I have to get. Megan has recommendations. I just started reading Swamp Thing, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. It's really good. Okay. Uh, They don't have the second book here. That's what I was trying to buy today. I had to get the third. But I can loan you the first one if you want. It's really good. Well, I'm trying to spend these, but thank you. Yeah. Who who gave you this? When you perform stand-up here, Uh, they are nice enough to give you uh, a gift. That's awesome. You guys should all perform stand-up. <laughs> and there's a, an open mic following this, so <laughs> stick around. Uh, quick question: Read Why the Last Man and Powers. Super good. Why the Last Man? Uh, Not a lot of recognition applause from them on that. No, no. Okay. Good. All right. They're being polite. Uh, they're just so aware of how good it is. They don't even need to applaud anymore. He knows. He, he knows he, how good. He knows. All right. Could you talk a little bit about uh, what directors are looking for when you're writing things like fight sequences? I'd actually expand that. Thanks, that's a great question. I'd expand that to ask, what are directors looking for in your script besides it being uh, on time? It's different in TV because unless it's a a director who's sort of a producing director on your show, they really are double-parked in a lot of ways. (laughs) Like, TV is really a writer's medium. It's a little bit more of a director's now. Um, I mean, they have to be able to... No, they have to get it done for the big things that look cool. Uh, but mostly it's really when if you, if you just if the question is how do you write action for an action show you describe what you want to see on the screen and you try to tell the story through the action just like you would in a fight scene that's a verbal fight scene and then eventually someone's going to look at it like the line producer and say what are you kidding <laughs> like we can't have driving on this show drive it's too expensive <laughs> What if we called it Park or possibly American Idol or something? Uh, anything That's else how from American Idol came? I know it is. It is. The secret origin. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, in television, um, when you're writing action, and Spartacus has a lot of action, uh, really we're, just, we're describing as clearly what happens and also what's really important is emotionally what's happening within the fight. But we're writing this more for the stunt coordinator than, than the director because the stunt coordinator will get this fight before the director that we bring in and they start choreographing it around what we write. That's true. Um, and, and Tim's right. Uh, in TV, really, it's the reverse of features. It's the directors are the one that really get the shit kicked out of them every single episode. You blame everything on the director. Um, It's the thing where the writer gets to blame the director. And it it happens pretty much every single episode. You'll you'll blame the director for something, even if it's your fault. (laughs) It's fair. Uh, Well, thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, We need to give a round of applause for 826LA. Please visit them at 826LA.org. A round of applause for everyone here at Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics, especially Ed and Barry, who made it sound great tonight. Thanks to my panelists, Stephen DeKnight, Megan Gans, Harris Whittles, and Tim Minear. We'll see you guys next month. Now leaving Nerdist.com.